What's up, everyone? This is Hannah with the Healthy Charleston Podcast. I am a physical therapist here in Charleston, and I am the new host of this podcast. This podcast is meant to give you the correct health and fitness information, along with spreading awareness of all of the different health and fitness professionals here in Charleston. I love being able to use this podcast as a way to meet all of those around me that are trying to make the world a better place. And my mission as a PT is to educate people and to empower them to take ownership and control of their health. This is season three of the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Healthy Charleston. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Healthy Charleston podcast. Today's episode is part two of my discussion with Dr. Joe Tata about chronic pain, lifestyle, and behavior interventions. This is a big episode, and that's why we had to break it into two parts. It's a ton of information. Today, we dive into the connection between anxiety, fear, and pain, what chronic pain is, how pain works, how pharmaceuticals and our healthcare industry have contributed or created the problem, and what you can start doing today to break the cycle and implement these strategies into your life and your clinical practice. If you or someone you know is dealing with chronic pain, this series is for you. And if you work in healthcare to help people get out of pain, this series is for you, especially if you're a student. I'm super excited about this series. I'm honored to have had Dr. Joe Tata on our podcast. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Getting back to the exercise part, which is always interesting because we are physical therapists, right? So there's a bit of a, um, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there, right? They don't necessarily expect you to start talking about fear or anxiety and how it relates to pain. However, we can make those connections, but the research on exercise for people with pain shows that within five minutes of very low to moderate exercise, Endorphins are produced, or or natural opioids, and people start to feel a benefit at just five minutes. And that lasts for typically between 30 to 60 minutes. Now, one, that means you don't have to do as much exercise as you think in the clinic. And it's also good news for someone with pain because they oftentimes come into our clinics and there's treadmills and bikes and heavy equipment around and they're a little bit overwhelmed, right? It's important for them to realize they don't have to do that much initially to kind of start to grease the spokes with regard to um, having some pain relief. Yes, we need to increase it over time, but not as much as you need when you're training an athlete. We don't necessarily have to work people up to 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. A lot of people with pain do just fine with between somewhere between 10 and 15. Now, if, if that's the case, if only if, if somewhere between five and 20 minutes is, is what they need and you're working in a practice environment where you have a half an hour with someone, well, what are you going to do the rest of the 15 minutes, let's say? And that's when you can work on diet, psychosocial aspects, mindfulness, um, CBT type interventions, pain education. That's where it all fits really uh, well. So we have to kind of reflect back on what am I doing that works what am I doing that doesn't work? I need to take it out of my treatment session, like a hot pack, so to speak, right? 
um, what do I need to do more of, let's say, and maybe like a little bit less of. All important aspects for us to reflect on as practitioners with regard to helping people. I like that you said that people want to know why they're in pain. Like people want to know what's going on and the factors that are contributing because I feel like they're, for some reason there's a message right now that people don't care. They just want you to get them out of pain. Like people don't care why their treatment is working and they don't care where pain comes from. And I struggle with that because I want people to improve knowing why they're improving, not because I'm telling them something inaccurate and dishonest and outdated. And I've been kind of struggling with that recently because I think so many therapists and practitioners like us, we feel like we almost have to be on the opposite side of the, the pendulum and we have to be super ethical and we have to make sure people know why dry needling works. Like people, we want to make sure people know that ultrasound isn't doing anything. It's like, we have to be right. But then the argument against that is, does it matter if they're getting better? And I'm like, yes, it does matter. But, but why does it matter? Like, why are we so firm in our beliefs? And I feel like it's one, it puts the control in the patient's hands. We're all about independence. It's about self-efficacy. If I'm giving you a treatment, let's say I'm dry needling you and you feel like that is the solution to your pain, what does that do for your independence? And I struggle with, well, I guess at the end of the day, I just want this person to be better. Um, but I also think the patient education side of it is huge. Do you feel like you have this feeling as well? I do. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't use many passive modalities at all. Um, as I mentioned before, most of what I'm using are active physical or psychological interventions. Um, that's not to say that modalities don't have their place, but when you look at the research on chronic pain, those interventions, there's poor research on those interventions. They don't really work for, for solving pain long-term. If they did, we wouldn't have a chronic pain epidemic. Good point. You don't even need the research on it. Just look at what's going on out there, right? right? There are some things that have popped up in the research recently, and it's what's called values-based activity or values-based goal setting. So it's helping someone look at um, aspects of their life. There's four key aspects, and those aspects are love, relationships, work, and recreation. Helping them explore those four domains and saying, hey, since pain has become a challenge, how has it affected your love life? How has it affected your relationships with your friends and family? How has it affected work? How has it affected your recreation and play, so to speak? And then starting to explore what comes up in those responses with them and then helping them reconnect in small ways in the beginning with those four dom domains, with those values-based domains. And there's really good research that shows when you start to counsel them and help them reconnect with those four domains, then pain decreases, and then people have the long-term outcomes that they're looking for. When we put what I call the cart before the horse, uh, 
when we say, hey, pain relief happens first, then you get back to your love life, then you get back to recreation, then you get back to work, then you get back to play, that sets up a really um, bad rule for people. Because if pain doesn't go away first, then what happens? Then they're stuck. They're stuck in a loop of pain control. So I like to kind of break that loop and say, hey, we're going to slowly help you get back to your valued life activities, the things that you love, the people that you love, the activities that you love. And as you get back toward those values-based activities, then the pain will start to decrease. And really what we're talking about here is, one, the reward um, system in your, in your brain. So when you re-engage with your friends and your family and work that's meaningful to you, it feels good, right? Things that feel good decrease pain. It's very difficult to hold the sensation of um, joy and the sensation of pain at the same time. Nine times out of 10, joy is going to overpower pain. So it's important that yes, we have these interventions that we use in the clinic, but we're helping people move in the direction of their values-based activities. I almost don't even want people to know that we offer dry needling sometimes because when people come in and they're like, oh, I, I want needling, it's like, oh man, that's, that's why you're here and that's your expectation. And, and it's like, well, I, I want to like fulfill your expectations to a degree, but also educate you on why that's not the solution. And I like that you said, start with the activities and the things that are meaningful. Cause I think so often we start with the pain relief. Okay. And we're like, we have to calm it down. And for people living in chronic pain, it's probably not realistic. I mean, that's why they're there. It's because they haven't been able to calm it down. And pain is pain that doesn't prevent me from doing anything. Pain that's just, oh, my elbow kind of hurts when I'm sitting here, but I have a fulfilled life and I can exercise and it doesn't affect my life. It does, I don't really care about that pain. But pain that prevents me from moving the way that I want to and prevents me in social settings and in my relationships, that's when it's a problem. And it's almost like this self-fulfilling, this cycle, because I have this pain which interferes with my life and my, the things that I love to do and the ways that I cope with stress. And then the alarm just gets turned on even more. And then it's like, I can't do these things anymore because I have pain. And because I have pain, I can't do these things. It's just, like you said, like you have to break the cycle. We use a lot of, meta we use a lot of metaphors in, in ACT. Um, and they're long um, story-like metaphors to... Um, instead of telling people like, hey, you can't just focus on pain, that doesn't work. People, it's very difficult for that message to land because we have set up this whole illusion of control in healthcare that we have ways to turn pain off. Now, we don't really have a whole lot of great ways to turn pain off because pain is an important biological signal. Um, if you step on attack, if you sprain your wrist, you need pain to let you know that there's some danger there to alert you. However, with chronic pain, that message has continued beyond the point of, of healing. Um, getting back to the, the idea of pain control and, and metaphors, I tell people this. Imagine you're sitting in your living room and you hear this knock at the door and you open up the front door and sitting there in the front stoop is a basket. And inside that basket is a little tiger cub. 
cute little tiger cub is looking up at you with these like big blue eyes. What do you do? You pick up the tiger cub and you bring him inside, right? And you kind of cuddle him and you snuggle him and you take good care of him. And then within about an hour or two, that little tiger cub starts to meow. So you think, oh, this little guy must be hungry. Let me feed him. Well, what do tiger cubs eat? Tiger cubs eat meat. So you go to the refrigerator, you take out some red chopped meat, and you give him a little tiny piece of chopped meat, and it kind of soothes the tiger cub, and he stops meowing, so to speak. Now that happens day after day, and month after month. And as time goes by, you're feeding that tiger cub bigger pieces of meat. Now the tiger, now that little cub is a full-grown tiger. And instead of just doing a little meow when he gets hungry, it's a full-grown growl with big, huge fangs and teeth. And now instead of a little piece of chopped meat, you're feeding him entire sides of beef. Now, what's the moral of that metaphor with regard to pain? The moral of the metaphor is if you keep feeding pain by saying, yeah, this is going to take it away, this is going to take it away, this is going to take it away, right, with these quick fix solutions, pain continues to grow and it grows out of control just like that tiger cub until one day that pain, that tiger has the ability to kind of eat you alive or in essence consume your entire life. Now opioids are a really good um, version of that where people just start with a little bit and they find themselves addicted to it over time and they become so addicted that now they don't just need a little opioid once every once in a while they're taking it multiple times a day and they're now no longer engaged with their friends and family and their love life and their relationships and their work. And the only thing to do is to actually wean them off the opioid. And we actually find that when we wean people off of these drugs, that their pain actually goes away. So we've kept them in that struggle with pain, right? That struggle with pain control. And it's really our job as clinicians to help people um, understand that the struggle with pain control can be worse than the pain itself. So, and why does pain work like that? Why can we feed pain? Why is pain the tiger cub? Because from an evolutionary perspective, our nervous system evolved for a number of different things. Um, one uh, was for procreation, right? The human organism was meant to reproduce. Um, and safety what is the second one. We have to be safe and we have to reproduce. So just naturally, our brain is very interested in anything that signals danger or pain, so to speak. And pain is a big danger signal. Because if you have pain, back in the, in the Stone Age, that pain was acute pain. It was the, the saber-toothed tiger that was going to eat you. It was the tribe coming over the hill that was going to kill you. And you ran or you fought that pain, so to speak. With chronic pain, which is due to a sense of nervousness not to an injury, you can't run from that. You can't fight that, so to speak, because it's internal. It's your mind. Basically. There's nothing to run from. There's nothing to run from. And there's no injury to soothe, right? Except for the pain itself is like almost what we're running from. Yeah, what we're really running from is we're really running from our own thoughts and emotions about the pain the I don't want the pain, 
Um, I, I, I can't have pain. I can't live a full life unless I have, have complete pain relief. We're terrified. Um, right. You're terrified. Pain makes me feel anxious. It makes me feel sad, depressed, traumatized. So we can't run from our own internal experiences, but we can learn to relate to it differently. And when we learn to relate to pain differently, that's how we start to overcome it and how we start to drop the struggle with, with pain control. I feel like it's so cultural at this point and it's, it's our society of, you know, don't do that. It's bad for your back. Oh, well, grandma had a bad back and grandma has chronic pain. And it's like, don't do that or you'll have pain and pain is horrible. And we're terrified of pain. And pain means something is really wrong. And so when people start to feel pain, like you said, they, they feed it. They go into this cascade. They catastrophize it. They worry about it. It takes over their lives because, because they don't understand it. And I think that, we, that that is why a lot of our mission is to explain what pain is um, and, and reassure and to take a lot of that fear out of it. Um, and because that's how our, our world approaches pain and, and discomfort. So how do you get someone to relate differently? And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot because I do too. How do you translate that and communicate that without someone being like, oh, well, are you saying it's all in my head? Because your brain is in your head. If it wasn't in your head, Nothing would be happening. You know, when someone has a heart attack, you're not like, oh, it's just all in your heart. Mm -hmm. It is all in your head, and that's the point. But people, there's a stigma to that, and, and people view it as, oh, we're, we're invalidating it, and we're saying it's not real. And we're not saying that the pain isn't real. We're saying that the threat might not be real. How do you approach that conversation? Yeah, they're great things for us to think about and, and talk about, of course. So the first is to normalize what the patient has experienced. Because so often people do feel like people think I'm crazy, like I'm making this pain up. So through education, through talking, through podcasts like this, people learn about pain. And you normalize for people that, hey, what you feel is 100% normal. And the steps you've taken to overcome pain are normal. You did what everyone recommended you should do. But there's a lot of practitioners out there who don't understand the latest about pain or the science of pain. And so far, you've thought that pain has been caused by damage to your body or something wrong with your muscle or your tendon or your joint, when in essence, it's due to the sensitive nervous system. And our job is to help kind of quiet or calm or decrease the sensitivity to that nervous system. There's lots of different ways we can do that. And you talk to them about all the lifestyle behavior change ways to do that. So just normalizing where they are and providing them with a little bit of hope is really important. The second aspect is nurturing some willingness. So nurturing some willingness for them to engage, even if things are a little bit painful or sore for them. Because what that does, now I don't, I'm not asking them to go run a marathon tomorrow, of course, just having them be willing to just do a little bit. That may just be taking the dog for a bit of a longer walk. Um, standing at the, at the sink and washing dishes for a longer period of time. Um, going back to a very gentle yoga class. 
and only doing, let's say, half the class the first couple of weeks. Just nurturing a little bit of that willingness for them to work with a little bit of that pain so that pain can be present. They can let that pain be with them as they're doing some of these activities. That's the best way to move them back toward having them engage with those life activities again. So those are the two biggest parts. Normalize it and then help them nurture some of that willingness to engage with it. It's almost like desensitizing themselves to the pain. That's right. So as, as you, as one, as you normalize things, people feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then two, as you're there, as their confidant, helping them nurture this whole process, nurture this willingness, what it does is it builds their confidence. It builds their self-efficacy. It helps them relate a little bit differently to fear, meaning that fear and that anxiety toward pain can be present. It can be there a little bit, right? Just like when I go public speak um, to big crowds of, of professionals, like I have a little bit of fear and I have a little bit of anxiety. Sometimes I have a whole lot of fear and a whole lot of anxiety, but I'm willing to be with that because it's important to me that I engage with this activity. Now, over time, over that, let's say one hour lecture, that anxiety and fear may go down a little bit. It may come back up. It may go way, way, way down. It may spike way, way, way back up. And I can kind of notice that, that, that it's there. And I notice I'm having this experience and I don't necessarily like it. It's not pleasant. I don't want it, but it doesn't stop me from doing the things that I do. And pain works the same way. Pain doesn't have to stop you from doing things. You can have a little bit of pain. You can let that pain be present. You can let those difficult emotions and thoughts that surround that pain be present and still start to engage with some of those activities. It's like the difference between like noticing it and being aware of it and, and judging it and trying to like make conclusions about it. And I think that's where our brains go. No pun intended. Like when we think about pain, because we want to find the reason and with people who have not had a lot of experience with pain or just these kind of topics, they, like you said, they feel like it's because of damage and they must be doing something wrong. And, and then they catastrophize. And again, we're in this cycle. And like you said, when you, when you go public speak, you still feel nervousness and anxiety, but it's almost like you're viewing it as I care about this and that's why I'm nervous not because this activity is bad for me. And then when you get done with that activity, you probably feel amazing because one, you just did something that you really loved and you cared about and you didn't let the nervousness, the anxiety, the pain, the fear, what have you stop you or control you. It's like you got through it. And I always think about it like a really hard workout. There's a reason that people love the way they feel at the end of a workout when they're laying on the floor because something that they didn't think that they could do they did it and it's done and now you you feel like you can do hard things and that's what I I try to tell people a lot this is not going to be easy this is going to be hard but you can do hard things and I think just a lot of the times people walking in the door was hard enough and once they get through that first session a lot of people feel a lot better because they, they've already done something for themselves and they've already done something that's, that's hard. Yeah. You know, the way we can kind of summarize that is 
um, in your values, you find pain and in pain, you find your values. And it's a nice way to um, kind of summarize up a, a values-based uh, approach to living. Look at it like this. Um, there's no falling in love without some emotional pain, right? Yes, exactly. There's um, uh, going back for a degree and education, like there's struggle in there, there's stress there, there's tension with the workload that you may have in school or pursuing a, a new career or a new job, there's uncertainty there. And it's the same with pain. There's a little bit of uncertainty there in the beginning, but when you become a little bit curious about it, a little bit playful with it, um, can start to relate to pain in a non-judgmental way, then it really starts to change that pain. It starts to change the way you see it, starts to change the way you relate to it, and it starts to change the way you relate to your entire life, if you will. And it can be really, it, it takes a while for people to be able to get to this point. But once they arrive there and they kind of land there, um, they don't go back the other direction. There may still be bad days, we all have them, but they know how to come out of that in a way that's healthier than before. So why do we view these types of discomforts? Why do we view them differently? Why do we view one as constructive and helpful and expected and then the other one terrifies us and, and rules our life? Well, we have a, um, I love this question, by the way, because I think, I think as professionals, we need to talk about this more and more. We have a very large medical pharmaceutical complex that has spent billions of dollars marketing to the public and telling them that if you have any type of pain, whether it's physical or emotional, it's wrong. You shouldn't have it. It means you're broken and you need this pill to fix it. Yes. Now, as I mentioned before, we're all going to have some physical pain in life. We're all going to have some emotional pain in life. We're all going to have loss in our life. We're going to lose someone we love, right? We're all going to get older and start to look at our bodies changing, right? But it doesn't mean that you're broken. It means that you're a normal, healthy human being. And there are definitely ways to um, age gracefully in ways that are pain-free. It's not normal to have pain in, in later years in life. Um, it's that we have, again, uh, you know, kind of hacked people to have, have them think that I should not have this pain. It's completely abnormal. I'm broken and the only fix is medication. And what we do in, in our work is to overcome some of those obstacles and barriers. But we need, through podcasts like yours and mine, need to keep sending this message that that message is wrong. That in actuality, they're damaging you by sending that message and come on over to to my side here and let me tell you how pain really works and let me tell you how we can create more vitality in your life for the long term in ways that are healthy that have relatively no side effects and the only side effects they do have are to make you um, more resilient both in your body as well as your mind it's so refreshing to hear you say that because Sometimes it feels like you're the only one that that believes or is preaching this and to know that your whole career is centered around this. It's, it gives me a lot of hope. And when you're emailed something about someone being a pain specialist, I was like, oh man, a pain specialist, because 
weirdly enough, when you go see a pain specialist right now, it's about shots and injections and opioids. And I'm like, well, that's not a pain specialist at all. And then I looked at your website and I was like, oh my gosh, thank God. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> this is going to be great. And it, yeah, you're right. Like the narrative of I'm broken, I need to be fixed. The people that are telling you that are the people that are trying to break you. And, you know, that's for a, a multitude of reasons. But it just, yeah, it, it makes me happy that there are people out there like preaching the right thing. And it, it can be frustrating, like when, when you're trying to put this information out on your podcast and your social media, and then you keep scrolling and you see someone doing the exact opposite and someone saying, if you have pain with this movement, stop. It's very bad for you. It's really wrong for you. Go see someone immediately. And I get, you know, like, rule it out, make sure it's not that big of a deal kind of thing. Um, but it just makes us constantly avoid pain and then think about pain and catastrophize pain. And I think, well, I know there is a huge role of, of our perception and our mindset of how we perceive our circumstances and our situations. Can you explain a little bit about, about why that's so important? It's, it's important that we advocate for people. We have a lot of information. We have a lot of education and we can help them distill down that information in ways that are really simple. So advocacy is a huge part of what we should be doing for people who struggle with chronic pain. You know, if we advocate in ways that are effective, as you mentioned, so we can advocate in our clinic, right? With one-on-one uh, -on -one treatment. Our websites can be um, public service announcements to advocate for people. Our social media can be ways to advocate for people. Um, our podcasts, community lectures. Um, there's so many different ways that we can serve people and advocacy is really a big part of that. So, you know, as we're talking about normalizing pain for people, nurturing their willingness, helping them create a new narrative, like these are like the three ends, right? Of helping people with, with pain care, but that narrative has to expand globally because we now live in a global economy and we live in a global society where information can spread in a matter of a millisecond, right? So it's extremely important for physical therapists and other health professionals to normalize this, to nurture this process for people and to create a new narrative for them. And as we do that, right, these things take time. Um, smoking is a good example, right? So you may not, uh, I'm a little bit older than you, Hannah, <laughs> but there was a time when people would smoke everywhere in restaurants, in bars and clubs, some places still do that. But for the most part, we have educated people and they realize that first and secondhand smoke is incredibly deadly. And actually, chronic pain can be the same way. We have some really good research that for those who live with chronic pain, they have, they have a decrease in their lifespan and a decrease in their health span. So this advocacy work is extremely important for us to send over the airways and to work with um, you know, everyone from children right through the elderly, through the entire lifespan to help people understand what pain is, how they can help themselves overcome it, and that there's hope for it. So chronic pain does have a big role in mortality rates. 
Dang. It, it definitely does. I mean, it, there's really good information. Well, there's two aspects that are important. Um, one, the opioid epidemic has actually caused our, our, our nation's life expectancy to decrease because so many people were dying from opioids mm. that it shifted the life expectancy numbers in our country in a way that people now live shorter periods of time on average, right? So we're the, the, one of the wealthiest, quote unquote, highly educated countries in the world and our life expectancy is going in the reverse direction. Opioids are a part of that. Chronic pain also creates an extremely sedentary lifestyle. And with that sedentary lifestyle, things like diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease and cancer are more likely to be challenges for people. And all those are, are highly associated with chronic pain syndromes. I feel like so much of what we're tackling is chronic disease, whether it be chronic pain that is associated with you know, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and our message is we don't want you to get to that point. And doing things like exercise can play a big role in whether you get to that point. I say all the time, I'd much rather treat a CrossFitter with shoulder pain than someone who I have to try, not like I'd much rather treat, but someone who is dealing with chronic disease and it's people are like, oh, you know, this is bad for you. CrossFit is bad for you. But like the difference is stark in, in why they have this pain, like the acute pain, the, the injury related or the training related pain and injury is such a different problem, even if it is a problem than the chronic pain and the outcomes that are associated with that. It's almost like different types of physical therapy. It is. There's, def there's definitely differences between acute conditions and um, helping someone overcome a chronic condition. Uh, they exist and, you know, it's more complex. But through research, through practice, through work like we're doing, we help people break down this complexity and we simplify it for them so that they can have things they can implement in their life rather than be overwhelmed um, by no information or in some instances, depending on uh, how much people use Google, too much information. That's Dr. The other Google, oh man. So too much information or too much of the wrong information is not useful either. So the, the benefit of coming to a licensed health professional is they're working from an evidence-based place where these things have been tested and there's support for them to overcome uh, the challenges that they're facing. When you just kind of like go out there on your own, I, you know, it kind of goes again back to like my mom's story. My mom had a foundation. She was a licensed health professional, right? So she knew about physiology and anatomy and about the body. A lot of people don't know, have that information. They don't know what they don't know. So it's our job to help them contact important information and information that's useful and simple for them they can use in their life. Which is so cool about our jobs is that we get to share our knowledge about the human body and these things to make other people's lives better. You know, I think it's easy to get bogged down in the opioid epide epidemic and chronic pain and the pivot that we're making right now. But like the fact that we can sit on a podcast on a Tuesday afternoon and talk about these things 
and broadcast that to a ton of people is amazing and it's it's powerful um and podcasts have changed that a lot for sure um you do a lot with nutrition as well and i think that's i think that's a lot of the times a really big missing piece in a lot of therapists and clinicians treatment can you tell me a little bit about how you approach the nutrition side of things with your patients and with your with your education for clinicians yeah i approach it from the aspect that food is medicine and every morsel of food that you take in and that gets assimilated through your body has an impact to be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory so the typical american diet people are eating about 60 percent of the food they eat is processed so it's food that's been highly processed, stripped of essential um, vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients, all which have anti-inflammatory properties. Typically, these foods are added with sugar, salt, and unhealthy fats, which are all pro-inflammatory. So with every bite you take, you have an ability to shift your physiology to one that's either anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory. And people have heard that message. They're just kind of unsure, where do I start? What diet? What's a healthy fat? What's an unhealthy fat? What's a whole, whole grain? What's not a whole grain, so to speak, right? Um, these are all questions that they have that we can help people overcome. How much water do I need? How much um, meat can I eat a week? And what should that serving size be? So that's all part of it. Um, you know, from the clinician perspective, um, chronic pain is, is partially caused by what's called central sensitization or what's now, now is called nociplastic pain. So that is neuroinflammation in the nervous system, right? Inflammation in the nervous system. Nutrition is a powerful way, both through the anti-inflammatory um, factors that are in foods to impact that but nutrition also impacts your gut microbiome. The bugs in your, in your gut send signals to your brain through the vagus nerve and through the, the circulatory system. They pass through the blood-brain barrier. So there's multiple different avenues for an anti-inflammatory effect to take effect through food. Um, so nutrition is, I get asked a lot of questions about nutrition by both people with pain and practitioners who are like, hey, I, I've worked on exercise. I've worked on physical activity, dry noodling, mobilization. I really see that weight is a problem, and I really see that uh, inflammatory foods are a problem. What can I do? How, how can I learn this? How can I begin with, with this? How can I start to implement this? So it's a big part. And, you know, it's no shock to people that exercise and nutrition is like 80% of your health. Yes. Eating food three times a day, which we all do, Every time you, you have an opportunity to use food as medicine. And then when you combine healthy movement with that, it's even better. It's a great way of phrasing it. It's an opportunity. And I have realized in the past couple of years, nutrition is it's so foundational. Like you said, food is medicine and exercise is medicine. And those combined are most of the things you need to be doing to be healthy and people I asked them about nutrition and they're like well I'm vegan 
so I'm healthy. Well, I'm plant-based, so I'm healthy, I'm gluten-free. And I'm like, what about that makes you healthy? And also, you know, what even is health? But people think that they need to label their what they consume for it to be healthy or they need to take these supplements and they need to get all these extra things and you know there's a, a list of things people think that they need to do to be healthy but I'm like you need to, ex to exercise regularly and your nutrition needs to be dialed in and it can, really can be simple and I have personally tried to search so much for nutrition education because I think it is so foundational I think a lot of the times that the pain that we experience is and the problems that we experience especially with obesity and chronic disease are the tip of the iceberg to the ways that we've been living our lives for years when someone comes to you and I'm assuming like you never just need to make one change, right? Especially with chronic pain. Someone comes to you and they need to make exercise changes. They need to make nutrition changes. How, like, where do you start? How do you decide what to start with? There's two places. You can meet people where they are. So if you take a, a, a three-day diary of all the food they're eating, and you can just simply ask them, are you willing to make a couple of nutrition changes to your diet? And if they say no, then my advice is to shelve that maybe for a couple of sessions and then come back to it because it's important and we shouldn't let it go. And again, if it's on your website and it's in your intake paperwork, people are, are way less likely to say no. They're more likely to say, well, I was on a diet, didn't work. I actually gained more weight once I stopped it. And I'm not happy with it, et cetera, et cetera. And you start with little changes, right? So little changes can just be shifting a beverage choice, moving from sugary sodas to options that are low in sugar. Um, some of the, even some of the coffee that people drink in the morning from um, big coffee vendors are full of sugar. Like oh, the, no. pumpkin, the pumpkin spice latte oh, yeah. <laughs> that we see advertised so much really is an ice cream sundae. And it's got 50 grams of sugar in it. The American Heart Association recommendations, which are extremely liberal and can even go more restrictive as far as I'm concerned, are nine teaspoons of sugar per day added, right? You're way over the limit with that 50 grams of sugar that's in that beverage. So just beverage choices can be a great thing. Um, helping people increase their servings of fruits and vegetables is extremely important. Helping people identify healthy fats in cold water fish, olives and olive oil, nuts and seeds. All those fats are anti-inflammatory and they help shift the omega-6 um, balance toward an omega-3 balance. There's lots of different way, little ways. Now, if someone's ready, then I'm ready with a full healthy pattern of, of dietary change in eating that I start them. I start them on a program and say, hey, for the next 30 days, we're going to follow this program. I'm going to give you some great recipes, lists of foods that I want you to include that are anti-inflammatory, um, lists of foods I want you to take out that are anti-inflammatory and start them on that entire program and then help them track their weight, their BMI, all their pain scores, all their physical function scores, um, the psychosocial variables, 
there's a tremendous amount of research how nutrition impacts things like anxiety and depression, which many people with chronic pain struggle with. So tracking those psychosocial variables. All of these are things that dietitians can't do or don't do very well. We're the pain experts, right? So we can synchronize and in many ways lead nutrition care with regard to chronic pain. I'm glad that you said that because I just got my first certification, my precision nutrition certification is the one that I wanted to get first so that I could feel more qualified to talk about these things. And I almost feel like an imposter for it. And I, I had someone tell me, oh, we like to leave that to the experts. Um, we like to do what we do very well, and that's treat pain and get people moving. And so we refer out for that. And it, it made me really upset because I, I feel like it's a huge part of what we do. And like you said, I think we're in a very unique position especially when we have that trust and we have that therapeutic relationship to help people make these changes that have so much more to do than the amount of calories that you're eating. Like we, we know that food is way more than just what's on your plate. It's that's culture. Right. That's right. And as a physical therapist, you are a well-trained highly educated professional who has expertise in pain, probably more than, than anyone, definitely more than dietitians. I've done the research on all the programs. There's hardly any information in a um, four-year dietetic program about chronic pain. Yes, they learn about inflammation, how food affects inflammation, but not in relation to chronic pain. They have a long way to go. We already have that, as I mentioned. It's, it's in our entry-level training we can start making the connections between all those biopsychosocial factors of which nutrition is part of that, how to implement it, and then most importantly, how to measure it, right? Because they can't evaluate physical function. So how do they know if the diet is helping someone with their low back pain? How do they know if diet is helping someone with their neuropathy, with their balance, with their sensation, right? Those are all things within our scope of practice. So nutrition is one key intervention that we're using. The most important part is that we know how to evaluate and how to track the outcome from it. Dietitians don't know how to do that. So we can either lead that intervention solely by ourselves, and I recommend that physical therapists do that, and we don't give away our scope of practice, or we can synchronize that care, meaning we can lead the team. So if you decide that you want to work with a dietitian or another um, nutritionist, then you can lead that care and you can make those connections for them. But it really, especially in, a, in an environment like you're in, Hannah, where you have time with people, it makes perfect sense that it becomes part of the program. Perfect. I feel validated now. Thank you. What, would you, what advice would you give to students, new, new physical therapists, and maybe even very experienced clinicians about how to like sift through the information and, and how to start treating, I want to say treating a different way. Like what, for someone who feels overwhelmed and that they're, they're in a setting where they can't treat it the way they want to, what would be the first step? The first step is to really feed your natural curiosity you know a lot about healthcare and you're evaluating a lot. Start to look at the findings that are in front of you, the entire person, right? 
going back to that holistic aspect. So looking at their nutrition, psychosocial aspects, exercise, physical activity, stress, sleep, relationships, substances, right? All that is in our evaluation somewhere. And if it's not, start to include those in there. And then start to break it down and say, hey, what do I have education and knowledge of? What do I know a little bit about? And what do I know nothing about? And then start to cultivate those skills in yourself as a professional. And a lot of those things I uh, you know, teach people about through the Integrated Pain Science Institute and through the, the books and courses I have, but it really starts with a curiosity and wanting to improve and better your practice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're not trying to improve, just like with our patients, if you're not wanting to make a change, if you don't think there's a change to be made, then you're not ready for it. I feel like I'm going to go buy all your books now and listen to all your podcasts. (laughs) This has been awesome, Joe. Thank you so much. Thank you. I learned a ton. I'm excited to broadcast this to Charleston and, and get your message out there because I think it's so important. Um, you're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much. You're giving me so much hope as a new grad and I'm sure your patients love you and I, I'm excited to keep looking into your, your educational courses. Thank you. And if anyone wants to learn more about those, they can find information on the Integrated Pain Science Institute. And the latest book is called Radical Relief. It's available on Amazon. Awesome. I think I could talk all day, but I want to, you know, give you the rest of your day and everything. So thank you so much for everyone who's listening. Hope you enjoyed. You can find Dr. Joe Tata on Instagram, online. We'll tag all of that in the show notes. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head on over to Instagram. Find us at Healthy Charleston. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you ever have any topics you want us to talk about or guests you want to bring on, feel free to DM us. Otherwise, thanks again.